This is a guy at the movie's quick bite. Back in December, I had the opportunity to sit down and chat with filmmaker Sean Cawthon about his documentary Netflix vs. the World, his involvement in The Orange Years, and more of the projects that are coming down the pipe. This is that interview. Um, so first off, I did watch the 13-minute short of uh, Call Me Papa, and man, that's a tearjerker. <laughs> yeah, it, it, I mean, I made it, and every time I watch it, I get teary-eyed. I mean, I have four daughters, so I couldn't even imagine. You know, just not only the story of what obviously the Frank family went through, but also his response to, you know, the, the letters that were written and the assassinations in the 60s, just saying about the, the quote about planting a tree and whew, got me. <clears throat> all right. So um, we are recording. I'll edit all this. Uh, but what basically we'll do, we'll just start chatting. I have a few kind of questions to direct us in some different uh, directions here. Uh, and really focusing on mainly the four main films, but I'll kind of ask you how you, or four main projects, but ask you how you kind of got into what you're doing now and all. Yeah, sounds good. Is, so just to clarify though, the uh, the Orange Years, is that only on video on demand right now? That hasn't hit a streamer or anything, right? Right. It's, it's I mean, you can rent it or yeah. buy it on Amazon, Vudu, iTunes, you know, across the okay. board. You can buy the DVD, the Blu-ray. Excellent. All right. So I'm not going to do any sort of introduction here because we'll, I'll do that uh, kind of prior when I'm editing and such. Um, but so first, first off, how are you doing? How are you holding up during all this craziness? Good. Um, I'm at home with my family. Uh, I have a day job, but I, I sometimes go in the office, but a lot of stuff is like this, just on video chats. Yeah. I hear, and you just mentioned kind of before we got started that you have uh, four daughters. So I can't imagine trying to corral a family during this whole time and moving through with all the different lockdowns and safety steps and all that craziness that's going on right now. Yeah, they're all nine and under and the youngest is one. So she gets into everything. Lots of fun while you're trying to work at home, I'm sure. Um, so let's start off talking about your documentaries. I was first introduced to you uh, with the as a producer on the Orange. Uh, I'm sorry, on the Orange Pro the Orange Years. I keep calling it the Orange Project, um, <laughs> and I also called it the Nickelodeon Project earlier. But um, talk to me a little bit about how you got involved in documentary filmmaking, because the two projects that I've seen from you that are already released are absolutely incredible, but also go in different directions in terms of the story that you're telling. Yeah, and it's the same for the future projects too. I don't, I don't stay in the same wheelhouse. Uh, so to make a long story as short as I can, uh, I went to the University of Texas here in Austin. Uh, I got a degree in radio, television, film. I worked on independent films while I was going to UT. Uh, that taught me that I did not want to work on film sets unless I was a director, a producer, higher up because. I mean, I loved running waters for everyone, but I didn't want to spend like, you know, 15, 20 years working my way up. And just because you become like an assistant director, that does not mean you become a director. So I, I jumped to another field. I started working in reality TV. I worked on a show called Room Raiders. So if you're old enough, you'll remember a show on MTV where people would go through different people's rooms to decide who they would go on a date with. I so do I remember that, that show. <laughs> I did that for two years. I did it here in Austin, in Dallas, and then Arizona. And I would have continued to do it, but the show got canceled. 
so I went ahead and I moved out to LA and uh, I did some uh, pilots. Like I did one show, which was called like Celebrity Court with like Coolio and stuff like that, like deciding people's fate. Uh, <clears throat> and then I got a job doing red carpets and celebrity interviews for a company called Canal Plus Spain. They're like HBO over overseas. Okay. Um, so I did that for a long, long time. Uh, eventually ended back up in Texas with my wife who I met out there and we had one young daughter and uh, just kind of grew my family back here in Austin. And then I saw these two guys that were doing a crowdfund for a documentary they wanted to make about Nickelodeon, like the origins and all the way up through the 90s, which is my wheelhouse. Like I, I grew up on Nickelodeon. Uh, I wanted to watch Disney, but I didn't have that premium package. I remember as a kid watching the scrambled version of Disney. And if you're, you're young enough, you don't know, but they used to have TV channels that would be scrambled. So you could see it for a second and then it would start to like kind of get fuzzy and flip through. And it was the equivalent of me watching like, you know, naughty movies because I would try to watch Care Bears as a little kid and have it flickering through. Right. <laughs> but yeah, so I grew up on Nickelodeon. And so I reached out to him and I was like, uh, I have a lot of experience working with celebrities and such like that because I, I knew they were here in Texas. So they probably hadn't worked with higher type of talent. And so I came on as a producer and eventually uh, did cinematography and I um, edited the movie with uh, one of the directors, Scott Barber. Man of many talents there. <laughs> you uh, you answered my question. I was gonna ask if you were, you were I know that you and I are similar age. Uh, so I grew up on Nickelodeon and I remember watching that all the time. Is that what drew your interest to the project? Oh yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I mean, here, here's the thing about being a filmmaker. You can go out and you can make anything you want now. Like you have equipment you can grab and stuff like that, but you have to know what your audience is. A lot of people go in and they don't know their audience. So I knew this would be uh, something that would appeal to people my age. Uh, it had the nostalgia factor to it. So there was already a built-in audience going in. Sure. Uh, and also it's something I, I was passionate about. It was something I could get behind of like, oh, we're going to go interview Keenan. Okay, great. I grew up watching Keenan. You know, it's not like I'm going in and like, who the hell are you? Or <laughs> what is this show? I mean, when I was out in Hollywood, <clears throat> I mainly did movies and like, I didn't watch TV. So I would go and do, I would see like Invictus and then I would talk to Matt Damon about it. Right. But then sometimes I would have to go to TV junkets and I'd never heard of the show. Like I had to do... Uh, Prison Break season three and I'd never seen Prison Break and so I was interviewing people that I didn't know who they were I didn't know who their characters were I knew nothing about the show so I didn't have to worry about that with uh, Nickelodeon because yeah some of the stuff I was really too young like the uh, you can't do that on television like I watched it but I was really young so I don't fully know it but once you start getting into you know Nicktoons and like Legends of the Hidden Temple and and uh, Salute Your Shorts and I could go on but I mean, I had the biggest crush on uh, Hey Dude and Melanie. <laughs> <laughs> it's clearly the only reason why I watched it. I mean, it was an okay show, but I was watching for her. And then and then it grew into, I was watching Alex Mack for Larissa, who I got to meet in person, which was kind of cool to meet like your, your little boyhood crush. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny. That's one of, this documentary is one of those where as you're talking about different projects from, 
you know, Nickelodeon's past, I was reminded of those that I hadn't thought about them in forever. But I remember like, oh yeah, salute your shorts. Oh yeah, hey dude, you know, Clarissa explains it all, all that stuff. Um, the, the one you guys didn't focus on much is my personal pet peeve is Legends of the Hidden Temple because I do love Legends of the Hidden Temple. There's just uh, so much that had to be cut, unfortunately. Sure. I mean, we hiders, hiders keepers, you know, which was like a precursor to Legend of the Hidden uh, Temple, yeah. where you would go through a house and it was basically, I don't know if they just a straight rip off, but it's the same thing. It's like a side type video game platform that you would go through instead of running through rooms, you're running through like <laughs> hidden temple rooms. But yeah. That's, hey, there, there's so many nostalgic shows. I think what always gets me is looking back on how long they ran, though. Not all of them ran for very long. They were all like two to like three years. Like one season, one, one to two seasons. Exactly. It's crazy. Um, you know, I was working for a nonprofit a few years ago in Philadelphia, and we actually brought out Lori Beth Denver for an event. Um, and that was just so much fun to just sit back and talk about just like really life in general. I think we talked about Nickelodeon for maybe five minutes, um, but it's cool to see kind of what they're doing now and, you know, how they're remembered because so many of them were kids when they were on these shows and, you know, Keenan of course is doing big things with SNL and all that. But uh, a lot of them I think are still remembered for the roles that they had when we were kids. Yeah. I mean, I, even seeing Keenan, I still see him as the boy that I watched growing up. Like, I don't watch SNL, but I've seen clips, and it, it's still Keenan. Like, I can't. Yeah. It, it's Keenan. <laughs> yeah, same guy, same guy. So we talked about this a little bit earlier, but what what strikes me after watching you know two of your features, uh, first the Orange Ears, but then also Netflix versus the World, uh, and Netflix versus the World was fascinating to me because growing up in the blockbuster world and remembering kind of the evolution of Netflix, but not even realizing it had started before I actually thought it existed. Um, but remembering, you know, the time when the company was split into two and everyone thought that was the end of the world for Netflix and looking at it today, that documentary was so in depth and loaded with information from beginning to end. But then also recognizing that you have two new projects coming up that are going in different directions how do you go about identifying, you know, first the projects that you want? I think you mentioned, you know, you have to have an interest in them. Um, but then, you know, being able to switch gears from the nostalgic dive into Nickelodeon to, you know, talking about, you know, the office or diving into the business of Netflix. Uh, it's really just whatever, like, it's my interest. Uh, my wife's always like, I'm like, hey, I have an idea. And she's like, what is it? Because <laughs> I always have a different like angle. Like right now, uh, I'm finishing up my docu series because I was like, you know what? I want to do a docu series. Like I wanted almost to put Netflix versus the world into the docu series because there's just so much information we had to cut out. I feel like the Orange Year should have been a docu series because there was at least 30 minutes, if not more, that we cut out of that film to get it down to time. I mean, I cut a whole section on Nick at Night that's not in the the, the movie. Yeah, good point. Uh, it's just people like to binge and um so it i mean i i see an idea i'll read a story i'm like that's great like and i'll reach out like the the article that ran about the fraud for monopoly i immediately reached out to the writer and he was like yeah uh some people are uh, talking to me and then come to find out it was mark Wahlberg that like beat me to the punch but like anytime i hear an idea and i'm like that's that's movie i'm gonna jump on it uh, that's just kind of how I go. Like the office doc came from making Netflix first of the world because 
when I was making the thing, you know, at the time, I don't know what their, their numbers are right now, but the office was like in the top three shows watched on Netflix. And that's what stranger things and everything else. So I was like, you know what? I'm a big fan of the office, but I didn't realize it was that big. And then I started just going down the whole fandom culture. (laughs) It's definitely a deep dive. And the office I think has gotten more popular as the years have passed. Uh, listening to some of the podcasts that are out now with some of the stars that are, you know, talking about each episode. It's really fascinating to hear that, you know, and this is spoiler alert, I guess, for the docuseries, but when the show first started, it was not the big hit that everyone thought it was going to be. Um, it really is the little show that could until it got a couple seasons in and really picked yeah, I mean, up. I mean, I got, luckily, I was so lucky to get Kevin Riley in the docuseries, uh, who was running the content at NBC and got fired because he made decisions like bringing the office back for a second season when everyone said no. He also brought us shows like uh, Heroes and uh, 30 Rock. So like the guy knows what he's doing. Uh, but yeah, I mean, with that, it. I mean, COVID's been so crazy. Like I was literally in Los Angeles. I took vacation from my day job to go do my side fun projects that really, really drive me. Uh, I was interviewing Paul Feig for the office doc and literally I drove over to Palm Springs to get an interview for my auto Frank, who, if you, I know, you know, but if your viewers don't know is Anne Frank's father, I drove over to Palm Springs to get an interview. And then I drove back to uh, Burbank airport to fly out to Austin. And when I was in the air, they, they canceled South by Southwest and then the whole COVID role just started happening and it was like okay so covid paused my auto frank doc and then it could have really affected my docuseries for the office but i was like you know what i've been shooting this for a couple months in different locations from new york city to pennsylvania to los angeles to texas arizona like screw it like i have enough i'm just gonna roll with it because if i sit on it like it's just it's just going to sit there. So I've just jumped into post-production. I'm hoping to have all six episodes kind of fleshed out and edited by this the end of the month. That's excellent. Do they have a destination yet? Where My destination is as soon as I finish, I'm going to start shopping it. Uh, there you go. <laughs> it makes sense to live at Peacock. I mean, Peacock's just got the rights from Netflix, so they'll be yeah. getting it January 1st. So hopefully I can get in touch with Peacock and it can live uh, alongside the actual show. If not, there's such a fan base, like this could live wherever. It could be a a prime. It could, I mean, who knows if Netflix is even interested in having Office once it got ripped from them, if they're like, that show's dead to me, but who knows? (laughs) Yeah, I remember they spent a pretty penny to keep the Netflix, to keep the Office an additional year. Um, as they did Friends back in the day. I remember that was supposed to go away and fans were losing their minds. But with these streamers like HBO Max and Peacock popping up, it only makes sense for them to go home. That's crazy. Uh, so you mentioned COVID impacting your process. Has that really forced you to kind of redirect the, the projects at all? So specifically with Fan Level Midnight, did you have to make any adjustments to where you uh, Other than I just stopped shooting. Like I still had some, I was, I had another uh, shoot out in LA where I was going to go and pick up some more interviews. Um, And then I was like, you know what? It's just not going to make it. Like I'll just cut with what I have. And what it did for the Otto Frank thing is I got some interviews in the can, but then um, 
I just had to pause it because I need to go shoot in Europe and no international travel right now. Who knows when it's going to open up? A lot of the people in the docks are um, uh, older people, so more high risk. So it just is, it's not wise, even for a movie to like be like, screw it, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, please come out. I need your interview. Go to the <laughs> Uh, so let's talk about Call Me Papa, your story with, about Otto Frank. So you're diving into a, a much older history here and a personal story of grief and sort of, you know, self-resurrection, re kind of rebuilding a life. And um, it seems like ultimately a story of hope. What can you tell us about the project? Uh, so I made a short, maybe it was a year ago or whatever, and it was just it was a really powerful story that I'd heard at a TEDx talk. My wife was doing a TEDx talk and one of the other speakers there was talking about how she used to write with Otto Frank. And I'll be honest, like I thought all the Frank family died at the Holocaust. I didn't know anyone survived. Uh, so it got me really curious. I'm like, well, how did I not know one person actually survived? Oh, it makes sense because the diary was published. I just figured like someone came in and was like, hey, look at this diary, let's, let's publish it. Right. No, it her father. <laughs> Uh, so I, I mean, we've all seen the Holocaust story. It's one of the darkest times in modern history. I mean, back in the day, geno genocide happened like all the time, but like in modern history, like just a horrible thing. I feel like there's been tons of great movies. You know, you got Spielberg movies. You have, even though he's not the best person, Roman Polanski's, uh, movie, uh, stuff like that so i think people are educated on it and and how bad it was and everything but i found this auto frank story which for your your viewers it basically tells a story about after he publishes his daughter's diary people from all around the world just start writing to him so it's about following a few of the people that actually had that relationship with auto and they'd write back and forth and just his message of hope after going through such a devastating you know event i mean as a father thinking about losing, I have four daughters, like losing my daughters and losing my wife for no reason other than, you know, what religion they are or how they were raised. It's, yeah, it's, I mean, me making it like in, and when I was editing the short, it was tough. And when I watch it, I, I still, I still cry, which I'll be honest, I don't do with Netflix versus the world or the one. <laughs> <You're> right. <laughs> I said this day before we started recording tonight, today, but uh, I was tearing up watching it. It's just so impactful, even just a 13 minute short. I can't imagine what the full film is going to be like. And it, uh, it, I don't know. It, it makes me want to research more, to be quite honest. I feel like every time I watch a film on. I mean, the, the, the great, the greatest thing is like, you know, my nine-year-old daughter like has no understanding of the Holocaust and it, it opens up with me being able to explain that to her. Yeah. I've got to plug my computer in one second. Go for it. I have two computers that do two different things, so I don't have to log in and log out of all the things. All right, so I'm plugged in, so I'm good. Sounds good, sounds <laughs> good. Uh, so you're, you're wrapping up Fan Level Midnight now, and then I assume that uh, Call Me Papa will be the next project to kind of- Actually, I'm in negotiation to do another documentary. I can't say what, okay. but um, I was reached out to by some of the people that saw uh, Netflix First of the World, and they're like, I love your movie. I just want to meet you. Let's, let's hang out. And then they were kind of telling me about their business and everything, which really has a, a really good story. 
I'll just say that. So we're in negotiation about me making a documentary about their company. So that might be the next thing I start uh, while I'm waiting for COVID to go away and to get Kami Papa hopefully started this summer. Um, yeah, be able to travel again and get those interviews. But then I have uh, I have some other ideas that have come up or former people have reached out to me and like, I have this story, do you want to help? Uh, what's interesting is just, you know, people seeing my movies now, people will reach out to me and I'm, I'm loving to give whatever knowledge that I have because I've been doing research on, you know, VOD, SVOD, uh, TVOD, AVOD. And for your viewers, there's just, it's a whole different world, but you have, you know, your video on demand, your streaming video on your demand, your transactional video on demand. That's when you pay for stuff like rentals or purchase yep. or your AVOD, which is things like 2V, 2V, Pluto TV, stuff like that, where you're watching TV uh, streamed and then it has ads built in. So, yeah. <laughs> It's quite the, the different landscape now. I, I mean, these things have always been there, but I feel like there's more attention to them now based on kind of the changing world that we're in. But you mentioned other projects and I don't want you to reveal kind of anything that like you're, you're probably gonna be working on in the next couple of years potentially, but if you had to dive into sort of one major interest of yours or something that's kind of a pipe dream to, to build a documentary around, what would, what would that be? Well, I don't even... <sighs> See, here's the thing, and that's why I keep on switching what docs I work on. I don't want to be known as like the business guy doc. Like, uh, like Netflix versus the world has done very well in San Francisco. Like high profile, like VC people and stuff like that have seen it. And that's, I knew that was the audience for it. Uh, and they probably could care less about Nickelodeon. And the Nickelodeon people, I think they would actually love the Netflix stock because it deals with, you know, the world we live in, like Blockbuster, like the Blockbuster guys were great. Uh, the, the thing I'm really holding on to is I have a horror script that I want to do that's okay. narrative. And the reason why I haven't done it is, <clears throat> like I said, I'm a, I'm a dad. I have, I have kids. I have a day job. Like I can't take off for like two months to go shoot a narrative film. Uh, but I can take off a weekend to go shoot an interview and then in three weeks, take off another time and go shoot whatever, and then piece together a documentary. So that's why I've been concentrating on documentary. I hope to make the jump to narrative films in a few years. It's probably going to be probably two to three years before I can even do that. I'm trying to wrap up these docs, but every time I get done with a doc, someone's coming to me with like, you got to do this. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, and I hope that you continue down that road because I said this to you when we started messaging, I think after I watched the orange years, but just the energy in these docs is so different than sort of some others that I've seen. Um, I, I'm a big documentary person and, you know, sometimes you just get really bogged down in one or two or three interviews or one or two or three people um, in the documentary, but you really approach it, especially Netflix versus the world, the number of angles that you were able to approach that from with the people that were there on the ground at Netflix, but also Blockbuster, that dynamic and that, you know, perspective was invaluable to that story. Thanks. I appreciate that. Of course, of course. Um, so when you're not in the process of filmmaking and your day job and, you know, a family man raising four kids with your wife, what kind of films do you gravitate towards? Are you more of a documentary person or are there other sort of genres that you're interested in? 
it has to be like a <clears throat> a documentary that hits my interests. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I'll watch different docs and sometimes my kids will watch. Uh, but I'll be honest, like I love the Mandalorian. Like I'm not a I'm so not good. a Star Wars guy. Like I like the originals, the prequels or whatever. The new ones are okay. But the Mandalorian, damn, I love that show. And it's yeah. great because my kids will watch it with me. It gives a good show that I can watch with my kids because the other show that I really love watching right now is The Boys. And there's no <laughs> way in hell I'm watching that with my kids. <laughs> yeah, that is not uh, in the same vein as The Mandalorian in terms of family watch. <laughs> but it's like, you know, I went to film school and there's a lot of great people in film school, but there's also a lot of like, you know, very film snobs. So yep. like, what's your top, your, what, what's your favorite movies, right? And then people will start like naming like French New Wave type stuff or like right. <laughs> they'll go to Metropolis, like the really old movie or like Lumiere, the, the guy that was like really, you know, put the freaking man on the moon in the movie. And I'm like, you know what? My favorite movies are, my, my favorite top movie is Shawshank Redemption, uh, followed by, in no particular order, Dumb and Dumber and Die Hard. Like these are movies that I love, like Dumb and Dumber I can watch and I'm always gonna laugh. Like it, it's my favorite comedy of all time. It's Die a classic. Hard, <laughs> Die Hard is the most badass action film I've ever seen. I love it. It's, you're literally going floor to floor killing bad guys. It's like, it's a video game in a movie that's just magic. And then I'm a big, I've been big Chris Nolan guy. And so like Dark Knight is like, favorite superhero movie it's number four on my list you know and then memento is my favorite independent film which is nolan's and that's my number five i mean just the way that he could create a movie that no one had created before totally original totally format just blew my mind so that's kind of where i'm at yeah he's definitely the it director right now uh you know with being able to kind of push theaters to release tenet over the summer the way they did and I don't think it worked out as well as they wanted to, but he's just so inventive with, you know, with his films. Inception's one of my favorite because favorites because just being oh, that yeah. original idea and having the ability to put that together, I just I have no idea how people come up with things. Like, like I didn't love Tenet, and my wife was confused during a lot of it, and I just heard that from a lot of people. Like I don't know yeah. what I saw, but I appreciated it. It was something right. like it was different. Uh, now if I had a choice of seeing Tenet over like a John Wick, I'm going John Wick. Like John right. Wick, like that format, you don't have to blow my mind. I just know that Keanu Reeves is a badass in real life and in yeah. movies, he's just as more as like a badass. The John Wick series will keep going until Keanu Reeves can't do it anymore because that's, uh, they're making that money. But I'll just, be, I'll say this, they better come up with a good reason of why he could fall off the top of a building and hit the street like that was the one thing i was like oh, i could i could disbelief like him riding a horse and killing people on motorcycles and just the total but that was kind of like on the die hard series when like bruce willis like destroyed a harrier jet with like a, a 18 wheeler like that was a little too too far for me <laughs> is die hard a christmas movie hell yeah <laughs> you're on that side oh no um, so, you know, the funny thing with Tenet, though, is you remember there's a line in the movie where they say, like, you're, you're not supposed to understand. 
Uh, and that just defines all of his movies for me, right? <laughs> like at some point you just accept what they are. You just enjoy yourself and don't try to dive too deep into the logic of it. Um, so in terms of this upcoming year, I know, you know, theaters are crazy and uh, you're knee deep in all of your projects. Are there any films that you uh, have on the horizon of interest for you? Like anything that you really want to see? Uh, I, I go to theaters. Like yeah. it, I'm not the one that are like, no, like there has to be, you know, a vaccine for like six months before I even think to go into theaters. Theaters are a very important part of my life. Like I said, like I, I wasn't a TV person at a point. I was, I'd go to movies. When I worked in uh, the entertainment press, like I would see, you know, five, six movies uh, a week. I mean, it was free. <laughs> I would get screeners. I could go to the Chinese theater and watch like the latest movie from Warner Brothers that was releasing in two weeks. So I just love that experience of going into theater. So yeah, I mean, if things are in theater and I can go see it, like I might do it. I mean, I'm trying to, I don't know what I'll do with Wonder Woman. Like my kids want to go and everything, but just because of the age of my, my youngest, like I might just stay and watch it at home. But, you know, I took my wife, uh, wife on a date to go see Tenet in theaters. And then we went and saw Freaky because that was the only thing uh, in theaters, which I was, I was let down because Happy Death Day was just so funny and so fun that this yeah. film, I never like to say that a movie was bad or things because people try. Like even, here's the thing, like it's easy to go in and say like that movie was crap, that director did a horrible job and stuff like that, but it's still people doing their job, you right. know? So it's not, I don't find it productive to tear down. You can say, I didn't like this about it or things like that or because everyone likes to go in and like, oh, the Hollywood suits, they they mess up everything. Well, sometimes they don't. Because if you've ever seen a movie called Lady in the Water, mm -hmm. uh, was, was M. Night Shyamalan, that's a horrible movie. And he fought Disney. And Disney tried to improve that movie. But he was like, no, do you know who I am? I made six cents. So sometimes they can be right. And sometimes they can't. So it's just yeah. one of those things. There's a lot of films that uh nobody that's what i want to see the trailer just released today it's got Bob odenkirk you gotta check oh, it yes out. yes yes i saw the trailer came out i haven't watched it yet it's from the producers of john wick which explains why i'm so excited but i just watched <laughs> the trailer before we did this interview and i was like yes please <laughs> that's perfect that's absolutely perfect you know it's in the the amateur movie critic world um i everyone kind of likes to crap on movies. I think that's the big thing. People like, they think they're going to get views and get attention when they do that. But uh, I, I never give a movie, you know, a zero or anything like that because I'm always, someone had a vision and who am I to question that vision at the end of the day? I may not like it. It may not be for me. There may be some visible issues. Um, but at the end of the day, the filmmakers making the film that they wanted to make, in most cases, um, if, unless there's, you know, heavy interference. But Good for them. I mean, and good for you. Like, right. If I, mean, I don't like one of your documentaries, that's you put your heart and soul into it. But that's fine. I mean, like my uh, my daughter was crying. My six year old daughter was crying because she drew a uh, reindeer at school and some kids were laughing at it. So I had to have a talk with her and brought her up and sat her in my lap right here, brought up my reviews for Netflix versus the world. And I said, you see those five stars? Those are people that like daddy's movies. Well, you see these one stars? These are people that didn't like daddy's movies. <laughs> I go, you know what? It's fine because it's art. Like not everyone's going to like it. 
So look, daddy gets bad reviews and daddy gets good reviews. And you just have to go and I'm happy with my movie. So you're happy with your reindeer. So it doesn't matter how other people react. And then we went through and I showed her modern art and I was showing her like Van Gogh. And I was like, do you like this? And she's like, yes. And then I pulled up, you know, scribble, scrabble art. And I was like, do you like that? And she's like, no. And I'm like, exactly. As art, you're not going to like everything and it's okay. It's only bad as if you went to that artist that did the scribble scrabble and you told them how much they sucked. <laughs> it's a good lesson. It's, it's a good way to communicate that lesson too. I mean, you're, you're dealing with the same things with, as a filmmaker, right? I, can, I, I don't know that I would have the, the strength to read any of those bad reviews though if I was to make a film and <laughs> it got crap. I mean, sometimes they have like legit stuff. They're like, oh, this looks like, you know, they had no money to make it. And then sometimes you're like, yeah, exactly. Like, I don't work in Hollywood. It's like out of my pocketbook. Like, that's fine. Like, I didn't have a million dollars to make this doc. Or what's weird is, is, well, not weird. I knew it would happen. Like some of the reviews for Netflix versus the world was like, Netflix is for pedophiles and stuff like that, which has nothing to do with the movie. It's just it's, things you have to kind of throw off. Yeah. <laughs> That, that's definitely, uh, you got caught in a news cycle there with that one film release a couple of months ago, right? <laughs> yeah, or, or you'll have people that are like, I wish they had more information. And you're like, yeah, but I had it. I cut it out because I don't know if someone wants, wants to watch a two-hour doc. And then so, I mean, that's the thing also with movies is you never know what happened and what was cut out and for right. what reason. A lot of times it's just for time because people only will commit so much time to uh, a movie. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, are there any plans, I guess, not having seen the Orange Years as an example on Blu-ray, are there plans to release any of that additional footage or? Uh, it is on Blu-ray. Blu okay. I don't think they're doing any of the additional. I mean, I would love to people to see the, you know, the Nick at Night piece that I cut that had Melissa Joan Hart talking about watching Dick Van Dyke with her her parents growing up. I mean, cool. Nick at Night, I watched, what was it, Lassie? I think uh, Flipper might have been on it for a time being. I watched, uh, uh, what was it, uh, Mr. Ed? Uh, so much so that as a child, and this blows people's mind, I actually think the, I, I thought the world used to be black and white. I thought it was Pleasantville because in my mind, the camera captures the real world. So everything in those old things were black and white. So I thought just one day color came into the world and that's why we have color in the new stuff and the old stuff is black and white. Hey, I, I'm with you there. I mean, as a kid, we believe a lot of different things, right? <laughs> um, Sean, I, I want to be cognizant of the time here. I want to thank you for taking the time to chat. As I said, I'm a big fan of your work. I love documentaries and kind of falling into the orange years, but then diving more into uh, Netflix versus the world and hearing about what's coming up, seeing the trailer for Fan Level Midnight, watching the short for Call Me Papa. I'm very excited for those. Um, and especially the one that you can't talk about. I'm, I want to hear more about that when that becomes public and if it becomes, uh, you know, comes into fruition. Um, but I'm going to put the trailers for each of the projects that are released or that are out uh, on the or in the show notes. Uh, so we'll be able to share that around too. But I really appreciate you taking the time. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Thank you. Awesome. Well, hey, 
again, I'm enjoying all the films that you're doing and I'm kind of jealous that you're able to dive into your interest in that way. Um, is your day job related to filmmaking? Mm, kind of. Uh, I run the video department for a company called uh, Keller Williams Realty International. So I have a team of like 13 people under me and we make uh, live stream content. We run their events. We run their promotional videos. We run their training. So yes. that's what I'm getting paid for at this second. And that's why I was like, I can't go live because then they'll show that I'm not <laughs> at my, my desk doing work. Hey, I'm an attorney for a small college, so I'm doing the same thing right now. <laughs> but uh, I appreciate I it. Work done. <laughs> yeah, hey, and that's especially in this like COVID time, work from home. That's all that matters. <laughs> but I appreciate it. We'll talk soon. Uh, I'm definitely going to check out the Fan Level Midnight when that drops because uh, as a big Office fan, I'm very excited for it. Yeah, I'm. I'm actually doing T-shirts for it right now. I have a oh, whole line. I have like 40 shirts that i'm going to release with the company the chive so uh cool. yeah uh let me see i, I love think, the name too yeah i actually did a, i fan sourced it to see what people would uh be interested in let me see i'll give you a sneak peek this is my favorite shirt uh i have a lot of favorites but <laughs> I'm I'm particularly proud of this one. Uh, there we go. There, take a photo real quick. So I don't know how how well you'll be able to see it, but um, oh yeah, okay. Over, yeah, all right. So it's all of Michael's characters yet. Michael Scott is built in through the name. That's brilliant. <laughs> that's absolutely brilliant. So that's that's a shirt that I'm going to be buying myself. Yeah, definitely. That's that's one that uh, you'll be seeing my order come through for. I just saw Prison Mike on there and the end of the trailer with that Prison Mike cake. Yeah. Was so so weird. <laughs> but wow. Natalie Sideserf, she's got a new show on Discovery coming out. Like she's she's legit. She's on Duff versus Buddy and oh wow stuff like that. Like she can make anything. She's so talented. Like I found her cake online and I looked her up and I found out she was in Austin. I was like, no fucking way. <laughs> like I just drive down the street to go interview her. <laughs> you um you mentioned when we were chatting about um I'm gonna forget his name, but the guy from NBC who championed a lot. Kevin of Riley. Kevin Riley, when he made made the comment in the trailer that the like they were making fun of him or saying like you're not gonna why are we renewing this for a second season or something like that? And he said he wanted to stab them in the back. I was like, oh, okay. Right. Very it's interesting. Tough, because Kevin Riley was put over all the new, all the, all the contact for HBO Max. And then he was let go. Like they cleaned house on everyone. So I went from like, because when I interviewed him, he was the president of TBS TNT. And another one that they had. Uh, and then he was promoted. And I'm like, holy shit, I know one of the most powerful people in Hollywood right now. <laughs> and then it gets fired. And I was like, fuck, because like, like, There's he's Warner right now. he knows me and he likes me. <laughs> Damn land somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, he should. I mean, he's, he's had his hand in a lot of big, big shows. Not the track record. Definitely has that. 
it's going to be interesting to see. I mean, HBO, I think, well, Warner Media in general is kind of scrambling to figure out what to do with HBO Max, but then the backlash they're getting on the, the release plans for films next year. But they're only getting a backlash from um, cre- content creators. Sure. I mean, audiences love it. Like, I think their their subscriber base is going to shoot up because people are like, for whatever that costs, like I get all these big blockbuster uh, movies, like, and that's all yeah. that matters. AT&T just carries about like stock price. Like, True. so like, even if Chris Nolan's like, you know what? I'm never making another Warner movie. AT&T is going to say, I don't care. Like, <laughs> you know, the- Universal's on the phone already with him. <laughs> well, I mean, what they'll do is like what Netflix, I mean, Netflix tries to get like buy high profile people but in the end of the day like the queen's gambit can you tell me who directed that no no tiger king like it's all about just finding good content so like they won't care on the names behind shit <laughs> is that the project that you can't talk about uh, like a follow-up to joe exotic and stuff <laughs> there's so many people trying to do that <laughs> i know i know um the the part that worries me about the whole HBO Max thing is theaters down the road. I mean, I think they're going to bounce back regardless, but, you know, from a business standpoint, the negotiations that they need to have in the future about release windows and stuff, I don't know how Warner Brothers can stand on any leg when they just really kind of smack theaters upside the head with this. So pretty interesting. Definitely but I will gonna- say this, the interesting thing though, that Warner Brothers is doing because they're doing a day on day release least theaters will have content even though the content will be available streaming all the other theaters are just holding back their their product yeah it's a good point that's a very good point so it's like it's like hey you're getting wonder woman for christmas i know people can watch on hbo max but if not you were still running freaky like i've given you a blockbuster film that this is the only way you have got you would have gotten the blockbuster film yeah and that's what i don't think people are talking about that i'm like it's kind of like it sucks, but it's it's better than the option of not having it because the studios can't release all their blockbusters at once against each other. They'll cannibalize yeah. each other. So that's 100% true. I mean, if we were to look at all the films that were delayed this year into next year, it's going to be insane. They're not, none of them are going to make their money back on the films. Yeah. So it's it, one of the play, like originally one of my ideas for Fan Level Midnight was to four wallet with uh, uh, theaters and have like a get together and people can come in and they watch all the episodes there. And then um, I fly out different cast members and pay them. But like, these are high profile like tickets, like you're spending a hundred bucks, but you get to watch six episodes and sit with Stanley and get his autograph and pay him for his autograph. But then it's like a trivia type event but then yeah. with COVID, that's all out the window. But now I'm like, maybe because theaters don't have shit to put, there's still a call. So I'm still still kicking around that idea. That's an interesting idea. It's a very interesting idea. It's gonna. I'm just hoping that things get back to normal soon because I I didn't go to the theater for Freaky. I rented it last week, I think, unfortunately. Um, but I, I'm kind of like on the fence around here because PA is not doing well. Um, but I, there's some stuff I want to hit the theaters for. Yeah, but you go into the theater, like, for Freaky, there was only three other people in the theater with my wife and I. That's true. And I usually, like, just steer clear of everyone else. They're doing a good job of separating people around you if there are more than three people in there. But And I just lick down everything I'm sitting on because that's <laughs> the safest way. 
<laughs> that uh, that might be a problem down the road. But <laughs> hey.